0: One of the things we do every time uh, we meet on Sunday mornings here is read from this book. And that's actually one of the things that makes us um, um, kind of unique or peculiar as, uh, as followers of Christ, as the Church of Jesus Christ, is that we are in a very real way uh, what might be called the people of the book. Um, we are people who believe that the words that are written in this book give us a message that is life transforming that gives us wisdom and direction for the choices and the path that we take in life Um, but even more than that because there are are several different um, kind of philosophies worldviews religions that that are shaped and communities that are shaped around a book but I think what makes us particularly Christian is that we believe that the words in this book don't only give us wisdom for living but lead us to an even greater message Um, who was given to us in the form of a person, Jesus Christ. Um, The Bible itself talks about Jesus who is the one who is called the Word, the ultimate message or revelation of God given to us in human form. And so there's something so significant in that that these words are not merely meant to be kind of direction for our lives that we're meant to blindly follow because we adhere to a certain religion, but they're meant to actually lead us into relationship with a person, Jesus, who's this ultimate message, ultimate revelation of God. Um, And he's not just one who was alive back then and who we can kind of remember fondly, but he's one who is alive today through the power of the Holy Spirit and who we believe, like these words actually lead us into that. And many of us in this room have had this experience of these words actually not just being dead words on a page, but being words that have given us a whole new way of life and a whole new relationship with the one who's made us. And so every time we meet, as the words go black on the screen behind me. Every time we meet, we read these words and they're meant to be words that bring us to the person of Jesus, that bring us to the ultimate word or message of God and lead us into relationship with him. So why am I saying that? It's because I think often we can forget that and especially when we gather together, we can forget um, how significant these words are. Um, Vijay and I were at a conference recently and there was a, a pastor, in, or a, uh, he was the president actually of our um, our, Uh, University and Theological Seminary and he was speaking and every time he got up to speak he would read the words of the Bible but before he would he would say take heed These are God's words, and I would be like, oh wow, yeah, yeah, you're right. And it would almost like, it would be like, I'd be kind of reminded to kind of sit on the edge of my chair, remember what these words are. This is no ordinary book, these are words of life. So we wanted to just remind ourselves that again and say even moving forward as a congregation, how can we continue every time we come to this book, we open up this book, remember that we are a community, that we are the people of the book that lead us to the one who created all things, who continues to birth new life in us as well. Um, And so we want to kind of start a new, a bit of a new tradition for us. You can see the words kind of at the end of the passage behind me. Um, Each week, um, we actually want to start trying to invite some new people and some new voices so the Word kind of remains fresh. If that's, uh, if that's something you might be interested in, to come on Sunday mornings and to read Scripture every once in a while, I'd love for you to talk to me after the service. But after uh, each week, or when we read the passage, we want to just say, whoever's reading is going to finish up by saying, this is God's Word, and you're all going to respond by saying, Thanks be to God. And this is something that's been done for a long, long time in many, many different churches and traditions. And we don't just do it because it's always been done and it's something that kind of sounds nice or whatever. We do it because we believe it, that we can say thanks be to God that he's given us a word that radically transforms our life and leads us to the one who gives us a whole new definition of what it means to be alive, what it means to know God. So we're going to practice that today. The passage that I'm going to be reading from before V.J. comes and preaches on it is taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and you can follow along with me. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles.
1: Good morning, church. Good to be with you in the house of God today and gathering around God's word and, uh, as Tony said, believing that he is with us as we desire to meet with him. He has an even greater desire to meet with us, which is a good thing. Uh, I have a confession to make. I, I confess things regularly from the front of this room. We don't have sort of uh, this necessarily liturgical practice of confession, but I seem to be doing it all the time. I realize, have realized something about myself for the last little while. I think it kind of coincided with... Um, my anniversary date, but I'm not quite sure when this, but that I fundamentally wish everyone was like me. <laughs> that, I mean, this is not a trite confession, like I actually, when I think about it, that most of the conflict that I have with the people that are close to me is because I kind of am like, well, why would you do that? You know, why, Why? and sometimes I'll even say that, you know, or, okay, that's good, but You know, or how about, in other words, can you see things from my perspective? And maybe if you saw them from my perspective, like, you would do things from my perspective and the world would be a better place. Now, I don't say all that out loud, usually, but that's kind of fundamentally what's underneath it. And and sometimes I'll do that when I read the newspaper and I think, oh, you know, like, why would they do that? You know, whether it's the prime minister or the president of this company or the manager of my sports team what are you thinking, you know? And we all do that. There's a phrase called armchair quarterback, you know? Um, I do that even sometimes in our denomination, we're a part of an amazing family of churches. But many times I'm like, oh, come on, like it would be great if our denomination could do this. Why wouldn't we do this differently? And I think, I hope that I'm not really alone in this confession, that if you actually reflected for a moment on most of the conflict that you have in your life, especially with the people close to you, it comes out of a place where you basically you wish they were like you. You wish they thought like you, acted like you. Um, when you correct them, it's kind of like, well, how could, you, how could you possibly, sometimes we're thinking, how could you even see the world like that? Couldn't you, and subtext is, can't you see this from my perspective? Sometimes we think that about our employers, you know, like, oh, what are they doing? If I was running this company, or the people that maybe are in authority over us, have some influence over us, we're always like, oh, you know, if they only saw the world like I did, and sometimes we even say that, but truthfully, underneath that, is this desire that we wish everyone was like us? Now, we sort of know that's socially unacceptable. We <laughs> wouldn't say it out loud. And maybe so, many of us have come to this place, and in fact, I think as a culture, at this point in history, where we have come out of authority structures like the church or the state or um, uh, you know, um, the monarchy or whatever that we have said, you know, we, don't, we don't throw off that. We've come to this point where we said, well, just live and let live. Like, I'm not, well, you do whatever you want to do, but that's not how I would do it. I'm going to live life my own way. I'm my own person, I'm going to make my own decisions, I can't change you anymore, I've given up on that, and sometimes we can, we can be like that, we have an attitude like that in the culture, just kind of live and let live, do your own thing, whatever that's true for you, that's fine, I'm not going to get into an argument about it. Sometimes though, we can live like that in our relationships, where in a sense, we maybe have given up hope in a marriage, where we think, oh, okay, I'm going to forget trying to change you, and we sort of know, because our pastor tells us this from time to time, that you're not supposed to try to change each other, so we go, fine, fine, I'll just give up on that. The challenge is, so we have this, this, this innate, I think, instinctive desire to want people to be like us, to be differently, and yet on the, on the other hand, we know that that sort of really doesn't go anywhere, and maybe we shouldn't think like that, and so we just let go of it. But the problem is, if you don't want people to change, it kind of means you don't really love them. Think about the people closest to you. Forget government, employer, and those kinds of things, but let's think about the people in our families, our friends, our spouse if we're married, our children if we have them. If you don't want them to change, you don't really love them. So every one of us is ruled by addictions of some kind. Maybe it's alcohol, things that are maybe obvious. Maybe other things we wouldn't even consider addiction. Shopping, yes, it is. Maybe just kind of wasting our time on media. Maybe... Anger, anger patterns, maybe self-loathing or self-destructive behaviors. When we are close to people and we observe the fact that every one of us has these things in our lives, if you really love them, you actually want them to change. So now we're caught. We kind of know we can't change people, and if it comes out of a thing that we wish they were like us, we know that's sort of wrong. But on the other hand, if we don't care what people do, and the fact is we care because often it affects us personally, but we're actually meant to say we want more for people. We want more for our loved ones. We want the people that we are close to to be free from the things that they're addicted to, to be free from the things that are kind of binding them or wrecking them a little bit. If we don't actually care that the people close to us make any movement in their life, it means we don't really love them. So now what do we do? What's amazing to find is that, well, actually, if you think about it, religion is sort of one of the main culprits in this whole we want to change you dynamic, right? And many, many, many of you maybe have had that experience as you grew up, whatever religion you come from, but that's, that's generally the perspective of the culture as it relates to religion. The problem with religion, problem with you faith people, is that you're always trying to change people. Why can't you just let other people believe what they want to believe? Why do you have to change them? Why do you have to make people think like you? And, of course, the church and, 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 to some degree, other religions have been guilty of this and historically just looking like, you know, the whole colonial movement and the whole when church and state was sort of united, it did seem. In fact, it was, historically. Basically, the church or religion or whatever, ever trying to make people believe what they wanted them to believe, making them change. And, of course, we know history is sort of littered with the wreckage of that kind of perspective. And yet I think there is something in the heart of God that has nothing to do with religion and making people change, but in fact that God has made us to want to change ourselves. And God has given us a desire and a a true, honest love that if we really love other people, we want more for them. We want them to change. And what's freeing about Scripture is that it actually gives us a pathway to deal with this inclination of what do we do with ourselves and the relationships that we're in with other people? How do we actually change ourselves and how do we influence the people around us? Because if we really love people, we want more for them than what they're battling with or struggling with, and we want more for ourselves. But how do we understand that? Because I think maybe some of you have come to this place like, yeah, this is the one thing I don't like about you religious people. And maybe you're sort of saying, oh, I'm not really part of this community. I'm just checking it out. But this is what I don't like about it. Or maybe you're a person of faith and you're like, this, yeah, this is the part that I've always felt awkward. in. I don't, I don't want to try to change people. That makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't like that whole dynamic. Author um, Craig Van Gelder put it this way. And I think it's so compelling to help us, to give us a framework that's the basis of our series over the next couple of weeks. He says this, growing up on a farm in rural Iowa provided me with an object lesson for understanding the church's nature. Each county in the state employed an extension agent to work with farmers. These extension agents were usually university graduates with degrees in agriculture. As new farming technologies, seeds, and fertilizers became available, the extension agents introduced these to farmers. My dad, like many farmers, was often hesitant to accept the innovations. One of the methods extension agents used to gain acceptance of these innovations was demonstration plots. A strip of land, usually along a major roadway, was selected as a demonstration plot where a new farming method, seed or fertilizer, was used to raise a crop. It was not uncommon for farmers to remain skeptical throughout the summer as the crops grew, but there was always keen interest in the fall when the crop was harvested. Invariably, the innovation performed better than the crops in the surrounding fields. By the next year, many farmers, including my dad, would be using the innovation as if it had been their idea all along. The church is God's demonstration plot in the world. Its very existence demonstrates his redemptive reign has already begun. Its very presence invites the world to watch, listen, examine, and consider accepting God's reign. This is perhaps one of the most compelling pictures and helps us understand how is it that God works his plans and his ways, which we've already sung about, are better and more beautiful than we could ever dream up for ourselves. How does he work that into our lives and how does that become transformational in the culture? How does that become transformational in the lives of the people that we love? That we essentially, as the church, are God's demonstration plot. In other words, We are an alternate society within the society. And you've heard me use this phrase before. We are a counterculture within the culture. We are a city within the city. That we, in a sense, are the people who are saying, okay, God, change us. We're not worried about changing other people. We want him to change us because we recognize we are all sinners. We all have addictions. We all have hangups. We all have problems from our past that are forcing their way as much as we try to stuff them down into our present and are, you know we're fearful they're gonna shape our future. We are all like that, and so we're saying, okay, God, change me, change me, bring your ways into our lives, and we're doing this as a community, the, the faith gathering, the church, and as that begins to work itself out in our lives, in a sense, we are on display for a world that's maybe skeptical about the ways of God, for a world that otherwise is leaning back and saying, I'm not sure about that, I had a bad experience, with religion, I had a bad experience with the church, but as we are on display and God's, the thing that God's grow, God grows, which is beautiful and transformational, as it begins to change, as we sang, forever I am changed by your love, then the world around us that otherwise would say, I don't know if I want it, leans in and says, maybe can you tell me a little bit more about how that works? That's the church. It is, in a sense, what we're, what we're calling in the next few weeks, the new normal. That God has actually gathered his people together and given us an entirely new way to live. And as we do that, and his spirit begins to transform our lives, and the outflow of our lives is actually something beautiful. That a world that otherwise would have said, I'm not interested in religion, I'm not interested in God, I'm not interested in the church, leans in for a second look. Because we are on display as a demonstration of what it would be like for God to come to a group of sinners. (laughs) and change their lives that's what it means the new normal and so we're going to unpack over the next few weeks using the book of acts which is really the it's it's the book that comes after the four biographies of jesus in the new testament and it is the history of the first church of the first demonstration plot and the way that it was meant to spread all over the world and we're going to use that book as a guide to say well what is the new normal in a sense that as the church what is meant to be normal as a part of our lives, a new normal, an alternate society that might make the rest of the world, that might make the people in your lives that you feel are so skeptical about faith or have rejected the church or want nothing to do with God, actually, instead of walk away, lean in and say, can you tell me a little bit more about that? What would that look like and how does that new normal work itself out into our community and our faith life? And so the passage that was read for you was from... Uh, Acts chapter two, the beginning of the biography of the first church. And what's so interesting, and and, and this is, um, you know, people who study the Bible say, like, this is one of those passages that kind of is a summary statement on everything that was happening in this new community. This was exploding. And so near the end of chapter two, um, there's these few verses that describe it. Maybe you've read this before. We've read this scripture in, in our church before. Maybe you're familiar with this. But I want you to look again at the, at the, um, the things that I've underlined there. There's so many descriptions about what the first church was like. It said they gathered around the apostles for teaching and so as Tony said, they, they were holding up the book. I mean, they, they, didn't, they only had the Old Testament at that point but they were gathering around in sense, the apostles witness to Jesus and the life of Jesus, everything that's now written down for us in the gospels before it was written, they were speaking it out in an oral tradition. They were recounting what Jesus had said, what Jesus had done, what it meant that he had died and risen and now had ascended into heaven and so they gathered around that and, and they prayed, but if you look at the description and the number of statements that are in this short passage, so many of them describe the relationships of that community. You ever, you ever notice that? Look at this. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now the word favor in in the New Testament oftentimes is used, the word is charis, Greek word charis, which means grace. And so it basically means they were enjoying the grace that each other was showing the other. So this is a community where grace was being exchanged back and forth. You know, look at some of the statements like about financially they were selling property or whatever. But it was symbolic also of a greater community that they were each giving and receiving grace. And so it describes this community that that was so enjoying the grace that each other was showing. And then naturally, the Lord added to their number. It was maybe the most radical, attractive community the world had ever seen around them in in one of the most hostile places in the world in the middle of the greco-roman world in in a jewish faith that was actually trying to stomp it out because they did not believe that jesus was the messiah in the middle of this hostile environment thousands of people are moving this community because of the radical way that they interacted with one another Now, this is interesting as we read this you know like if you've studied um political history or philosophy communism Karl marx the the theory of communism was look like we're better together than apart, and if we everybody comes together, everybody has everything in common, and so we can kind of read this and think, well, okay, was this sort of like an economic socialism, or was this sort of like a synergy where, um, you know, we concluded, well, we're better together than apart. Let's band together, and it's kind of hostile, so let's not be alone. It's not. It's describing something that is was a whole life giving of one to the other it wasn't just okay let's liquidate our assets and nobody can have more than another person which is what communism said that they were all going to be at the same level there's no class system and we're just going to eliminate that it wasn't that it's just people who freely who, who had things freely sold them and gave to another and if you continue to read in the book of acts there were specific stories of people who were doing this and it says it the, the way that it describes these weren't just a few kind of very wealthy people who were benefiting everyone else it was a mixed bag of people They were mixed ethnically, racially, different from religious backgrounds uh, initially when they came, and they were from different social classes, and yet as they got together, and they were freely exchanging grace, and it's not just this picture of the haves and the have-nots. It was actually a picture of whatever each person had, they were giving to another person, and so grace was being exchanged freely, and so this community is radically transformed by a selfless kind of giving to one another. It describes really a generosity that exploded within them. Which makes sense. Because who was the God they were worshiping? We just sang in in one of our verses, And, and unfortunately, not enough of our songs remind us of this. Praise the Father. Praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. Now, for those of you that are new or maybe not Christian, you're like, what is the deal with three in one Trinity? We can't get into all that today. I've preached messages on that before. If you're totally confused about it, we can talk about it after. And I know it doesn't matter if you've grown up in the church. It is kind of a confusing thing to wrap your mind around. But just to say this, that God, we understand, is a God in relationship. Father, Son, Spirit, three in one. That in a sense, in the Godhead, there is community, triunity. And so when a community is transformed by a God who is love in relationship, Father, Son, Spirit, then what will be the mark of that God on that community but loving relationships, A a unity in diversity. Not uniformity, but a unity in diversity. Not independence, I don't need you. Not dependence, I need you. I can't survive without you interdependence the difference between dependence and interdependence dependence is like i can't survive without you i need you help me interdependence says all i have is yours but as 99 are looking out for one or as each person looks out for the other now 99 are looking out for one. No one is alone. No one is an island. No one has to look after themselves. No one is saying, I need you, but you don't need me. No, we all have needs. Everyone comes into the community freely exchanging what they have to give, knowing that, hey, my life is yours. And as we do that, interdependence happens. You know, we just came through the series on marriage, and we said that, that's what marriage is, right? It's each one saying, my life is yours. We're not two half people trying to somehow complete each other and, and two halves make a whole. You, you don't, marriage is an addition, it's a multiplying of fractions. So you mathematicians know what happens when you multiply fractions, right? You Get less. <laughs> it's, it's not how it works. It's saying, my life is yours. Yes, broken sinner I am, but my life is yours. And as each person does that in a community, in a sense, marriage is a picture of how the church is meant to relate to one another. There is interdependence. It is a picture of radical generosity. And I'm not just talking about sort of, we often think about generosity in the context of, you know, f- being financially sort of philanthropic. Generous. And certainly there was that happening in that community. But it, is all, it was a whole life, it was a free exchange of grace. Whatever I have is yours. And each person saying, oh, this is beautiful, this community, I don't have to look out for myself because 99 others are looking out for me, so I just look out for everyone else. And it works. That's what was so radical about this community. I got to thinking about this. It's what, probably the one single characteristic that we could say from scripture marked Jesus and that therefore should mark the church of Jesus. The word Christian means little Christ. It's kind of scary, right? Think twice next time you say, "Hey, I'm a Christian. I'm a little Christ, which means I'm marked by the thing that marked Jesus. It is humility. Now, humility is an often understood word, misunderstood word. We think or we associate humility with other characteristics that don't actually really belong with humility. We associate humility with um, self-deprecation or or meekness. Someone who doesn't really put themselves forward. He says, oh, no, 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 you go first. We associate humility with that, and yet that can be just as much pride as as someone who's loud and boastful and selfish because pride ultimately is an obsession with self. Whether I think too low of myself or I think too high of myself, it's all pride. Humility, and I've used this definition before, and I think it was uh, Timothy Keller that I got it from, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It is, in a sense, a blessed self forgetfulness. I have forgotten myself. Jesus in his life said I did not come to be served but to serve. In a sense his life Philippians 2 tells us he he gave up all that he had and became obedient and humbled himself to as one other person has defined humility holding our power in the service of others. Jesus used his power on earth. He used his influence, he used his authority, he had it all, but he always leveraged it for the good of those who had none. He gave up whatever he had in order that those who did not have would receive. He always kept saying, they used these analogies over and over, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. In his teaching, humility worked its way all the way through. I am among you as one who serves. And then, but his actions, he washed the feet of his disciples. He served tirelessly the sick, the needy. He ministered to people's emotional needs. He gave of himself and we know he was human and so he was tired at times from giving of himself physically. He gave up the right to stay in a certain place, take over his family's business, have some kind of stable income and have a home. He said, I have no place to live. He went around teaching, preaching, healing, loving and of course the cross is even still today the ultimate symbol of self-sacrifice, of humility. And so the community of Jesus, and we want to say Jesus wasn't timid, Jesus wasn't, oh no, 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 uh, you go first. Jesus wasn't self-deprecating. He was a powerful man. He said he was, pow- even, the, even the, the Roman historians, the Jewish historians who, you know, to our knowledge, d- didn't become Christians, Tacitus, Josephus, who, what they wrote about, they wrote about this man who was a mighty in word and deed, who did things. He was a powerful person, had nothing to do with timidity or self-deprecation. And yet he came to give of himself. He freely gave himself away. And so the community of little Christs should be marked more than anything else by this kind of humility. And we read that it's exactly the kind of community they were. They freely gave of themselves to one another. Generosity in this context. I remember listening to a message by Andy Stanley when he was talking about money and he made a point about generosity that I think relates to this whole life generosity we're talking about. He said, often in our culture, we are so aware of what we don't have. We're surrounded by people who have maybe nicer cars or nicer clothes or better jobs or better life situations. And, and of course, the advertisements that come at us are always advertising things we don't have. And so it breeds a discontentment, and it breeds greed, and it breeds a desire to acquire. He said, but what happens when you go and take somebody like that, and maybe you send them to an orphanage in another part of the world? What happens when someone maybe, and he talked about people, and even himself, you know, when he was thinking about buying a car and wanted this, and then he goes over to Africa, and he was working with a group of people in East Africa. And he said, all of a sudden, I'm working with these kids, and I realize, like, how much they need. He's like, I'm wanting to give them the shirt on my back. At that moment, I'm not thinking about what I don't have. I'm now, I'm like literally trying to give myself away. Everything I can think of, anything I can leave behind, I'm gonna leave behind. And he said, I've seen it happen over and over. And of course, I felt that too when we went and team, and any of you have had a chance to go to Guinea and be a part of the uh, Kids in Crisis Center. But really, our whole church has had that experience. As we have suddenly become aware of people who have a need and we have something we can give, generosity just starts to go. Why? Because awareness has now come to our mind suddenly we are not so much aware of what we don't have we are aware of what we do have and those that have need and we freely give and then we come back and we look at our closet full of clothes and it makes us almost want to throw up generosity grows when we become aware of the needs of others And I'm convinced that one of the things that holds us back from having this kind of community where we freely share who we are with one another, and I'm not just talking financially, I'm talking about where we give ourselves away, is because we don't really know each other. We don't really know who each other really is. We come into a situation, and somebody says something to us, and we get hurt by that. And we're not thinking I wonder why they said that i wonder where they're coming from i wonder what happened in their day i wonder what their life story is all they go is, i can't believe they said that to me how could they do that to me don't they know what are we doing we're thinking about ourselves we're not we don't actually know at all where that person's coming from we take what they said and we're hurt by it because we don't really know them we don't know the story of another we haven't actually been in touch with their needs, so we cannot be generous with ourselves because all we're thinking of is what I need and I don't have. And how could they not know that that was a terrible day for me? How could they not know that in that moment, this is what I needed? How could they not know that when they said that, it was gonna cut me? Were they not thinking about me? In that moment, I am not. I have not thought of myself less. I'm thinking of me. And I don't really know their need. And so I cannot be generous with myself because I am unaware of who they are really, and where they're coming from. Somebody once said, you know, every person you meet is going through a battle that you know nothing about. I've often tried to remember that. I remember when I was working in the hospitality industry and we were training our frontline service staff. And we were talking about the service, and from, the, from the actually that vantage point, we were saying, you know, sometimes a customer comes up and they're saying this or they're rude or whatever. You don't know what's going on in their lives. You don't know what story, and I've actually now flipped that around and sometimes if you come to a, a service counter or whatever and someone's just kind of rude or whatever, I think, well, I don't know what happened to them today. I don't know what story is behind them. That's just out there in the world, in the church. We are meant to be a community that really knows each other. Part of what I feel is lacking from us is the ability to actually ask questions where we come to know one another. Many of you are in home groups, and you've been in home groups for a while, and maybe what you've begun to realize is to actually get to that deeper level of freely giving ourselves to another, I actually have to think about myself less, but I cannot think about myself less unless I really start to know the other person. I'm not gonna willingly just give the shirt off my back when I don't have a sense of need of the other person, but they have needs. We all have needs. We are people who come into community with needs. And unless I'm able to actually know the other person, understand where they're coming from, I will not be generous with my life with them. Which means in Christian community we need to get really good at asking good questions. You may say that's kind of a silly or simple thing, isn't it? It is a simple thing, but it's kind of a lost art. And it's simple in the sense that it unlocks a knowledge of another person that leads us to be generous with them. It makes us realize that every one of us has needs. And our instinct as people, and sometimes even people within the church, is to not admit our own needs. And when we do that, we actually then begin to assume that someone else doesn't. And now all we're doing is thinking about ourselves. So we're not thinking about ourselves less. So we cannot actually be generous because we're not thinking about another person. We're not asking questions. And so we're a community of people that are afraid of vulnerability or afraid of admitting our needs. You know, it was funny. I was at a pastor's conference last week. We're all pastors together. And they're the last day, where they're sort of doing a communion service. And they said, okay, we're going to you know, come up at the end, and we're going to gather in groups, and we're going to pray for each other. I'm like, oh, yeah. It's like, see, I know how you feel, right, when I'm telling you, hey, we're going to do that. My, and I was like, why do you feel that? Because my first instinct was, oh, I, don't, I don't know if I want to tell people what I'm feeling today or what I'm going through. And in that moment, as I was reflecting on it, I was, I was actually feeling afraid. I was realizing that over the last year, in this role and leading as a church, that I've gotten afraid of taking risk, that I'm afraid of failure, that I'm afraid of people thinking like, I'm just doing a bad job. And I don't wanna say that to those people, but we got into that group and I'm thinking, well, maybe everyone else will share and I'll just pray for other people. And, and the guy who's leading that group looks me right in the eye, says, VJ, why don't you go first? What do you need? <laughs> See, I know how you feel, okay? Because people do it to me, so that's why I feel free to do it to you. <laughs> and, then, and then I just came out with it. And man, like, it was so beautiful. And, and I thought, okay, one person's gonna pray. There was like four of us. All, all three of them prayed for me. They anointed me prayed for me, and man, I felt so strengthened in that moment. But my initial reaction was, no, why? And, and, and because I was thinking about myself, and I didn't want to be exposed, and I didn't want to know, and whatever. And suddenly, three people are generously giving themselves to me, saying, tell us. And they're looking right at me, and they're listening to me, and they pray these beautiful prayers for me. And now what? Suddenly, now I am free to pray for them because they have lifted my burden. Now three were looking out for me. Now I'm, I'm free to pray for them. And I felt totally different than if I would said nothing and I would then have tried to fumble out some words to pray for them. I know the instinct is to say, oh no, I'm not going to go close. I don't want to know. I can't deal with other people's problems and I'm not going to be open about my own. But the speaker that morning had said, start your conversation with this very powerful question, how are you feeling? It was totally even different than if someone said, what can we pray for you? No, they said, V.J., what are you feeling today? Now, I'm going to lie to a bunch of pastors (laughs) or i got to tell them this is what I'm feeling. It was a simple question, and yet it unlocked generosity in that community, in that moment, and I was so blessed by it, and I realized, man, this is the church, this is what it's supposed to be like over and over and over as we gather together in homes, as we break bread together, and not just in home group, although there's a potential for that to happen, because that's the only reason you're there, is to live in that kind of humble generosity together. How do we make that happen on Sunday mornings? But it's meant to also happen in every part of our lives. When you become aware of the needs of others, suddenly you are free from yourself. And we experience the exchange of grace where each one is looking out for the other. This is what it's meant to be. And so the practice of learning to ask questions, to say, I'm not going to assume I know that person's story. There is something behind that whatever people are expressing, whether it's anger, whether it's frustration, whether it's a, a stepping away, it's coming out of a need that I don't know about. And what is their need and how do I find out? We're all ears and eyes and we think, oh, I could never go on that mission trip. I could never go to that community and find out what those people need. But we say, well, it's so obvious. But the truth is, all of us have needs. And so I need to have that lens as I come into community to say, what does that other person need? They responded out of anger. They responded a little bit kind of standoffish or they responded kind of blank. What's behind that? How can I ask a question? How do I get to know them more? And I'm not talking about strangers. I'm talking about people that we are in regular community relationship with. And you may not be able to do this with people outside the church. You may not be able to do this as much as you long to with people in your workplace. You may not even be able to do this with people in your own nuclear family. Sometimes the people in our nuclear family are the ones we feel most isolated to. But by the, in the name of Christ, we should be able to do it in the church because we worship a God who is triunity and he has brought us together and released us to say, okay, how do I think about myself less? The other thing that happens for generosity is not just becoming aware of the needs of others, but how much you have to give, right? Like that's when, when, when we go to some of these other places and we realize, man, like there's so much we have that we take for granted. I can have so much I can freely give. That's the other piece because just knowing a person's need is not enough. Because you might come into community and say, well, I don't have enough time, or I don't have enough emotional energy, or I got my own junk going on. How am I supposed to enter into the life of another person? It's not just becoming aware of the need. It's becoming aware of the embarrassment of riches that you and I have. You say, Vijay, what is the embarrassment of riches that I have? Do I have truckloads of time that I could just give to anyone and talk for hours and hours? Most people would say, probably not. Do I have tons of money that I could just keep giving or all these assets that I could liquidate? And Some people do. Maybe most people say, no, I don't. Do I have tons of wisdom that I can offer and I have all this stuff? No, I've got my own problems. What do I have truckloads of that I can freely give? Grace. We sing amazing grace that has been poured into my life by the love of God that Christ on the cross freely gave himself for me so that I have been forgiven of all my sins, that I'm daily piling up debt that I'm never going to have to pay back. That that old hymn, Oh to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Do you understand that? You are piling up a debt every day in your life to God because of who we are and what we do and we shouldn't do and what we don't do that we should do. And every day, God says, my mercies are new for you every morning. So I'm deeper and deeper into debt, and so are you. As grace pours into my life, a debt I'll never be able to pay back, and I'll never be asked to pay back. But I have been poured in grace, and that is what I have to freely give. We cannot live as this kind of community without the radical comprehension of the amazing grace of Christ that has been given to us. And that's why we gather around the word. That's why we gather around the communion table. That's why we remember the cross. That's why we sing about it all the time because we need to remember I'm a daily indebted to grace. And so the one thing I have truckloads of that I can freely give is grace. And the greater sinner you are, the more grace you have to give, right? Amen. Praise God for the sinners. That's why Paul, the Apostle Paul, the more he journeyed in life, the more he said, he went from, you know, no, I, yeah, I, I'm indebted to the grace of Christ near the end of his life. He's like, I'm, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst. And he was quite free to admit it. Why? Because, man, grace has abounded in my life. And so the deeper we come into a realization of who we are the more, or, and who we are and who God is, the more we realize how much grace we've been having. And that's the one thing we have to freely give to each other. This kind of radical, humble generosity in our lives comes when we are in community with one another and saying, I need to know who you really are. And I need to know again and again and again the amazing grace that I have received. When we really learn to ask questions and become aware of who each other is and we become more aware of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to us, this kind of community will be who we are. And that, friends, will be a neon sign to the world around us, that this is the real deal. Because that kind of community is uncommon. There's not that kind of grace in the world. Your employer doesn't owe it to you, your family doesn't owe it to you, nobody else. It, 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 of all the places in the world where we should be full of grace and sharing and receiving, it is the community of Christ. And we know even historically, it's what made the world around them look at this say, I want what you In the name of Jesus, don't we want to be a church like that? But it's hard, and so we got to learn and persevere in it. And so here's my little homework for you for the summer. The the three weeks of the year, whatever, we get sunshine in this beautiful city. But suddenly everyone's out now, and you're going to be out and around, and we're we're program low, no home groups this summer, whatever. You have free time. You have now even time to give. And so I want you to do this. Freely give away some of your time to ask some selfless questions. And here's three, and you can do it at your dinner table, open your homes to people, go out for coffee, go to a sports bar, whatever. Like women, you're comfortable sitting across looking eye to eye. Guys, we need to be beside each other looking at a screen with a pint in our hands saying, okay, how are you feeling, okay? So fine, talk about your sports, talk about whatever you bought, talk about all this stuff. But there's three questions, and these are easy to ask. And these are the cues, right? So when we go out with each other and, and, and one of your guy friends turns to you and says, hey, how are you feeling? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 that's what the pastor said to us. He hasn't just weirded out on me. What is your story? And we say, well, what do you mean? What, what do you mean, what's my story? I don't have, who are you? What? Tell me about your family. Tell me about your memories uh, as a child. Tell me about what shaped you in life. Tell me about how you ended up in the career that you ended up in. Who are you really? Tell me, what's your story? What's the most exciting or difficult thing in your life right now? And listen, some people, okay, you're going to ask that question, and they're going to give you a one-word answer. So now what? Ask another question. (laughs) They say one thing, don't go, oh, yeah, yeah, I totally know what you mean. Anyway, this week, blah, blah, blah. No, (laughs) tell me more. What do you mean? Ask another question. This is t- creates courage and, and, and is a risk for all of us, right? For some of us talkers, like, like me, like we have to, this is like a risk to sort of go, and, and a discipline to go, oh, I'll ask you another question. Oh yeah, oh yeah, this is not about me. Let me ask you another question. Enough about me, let's see what you think about me. Um, <laughs> this is a discipline for us talkers, but it's also a discipline for you guys who love to offer up the one, na- one word answer. I don't mean guys, I mean people, men and women. The, the, oh, uh, just, I'll just give a little bit. it's it's courageous for you to say, maybe I'll give a little bit more. Actually, I don't think I've ever told anyone this. Or when someone says, what was your childhood like? You know what? I haven't talked about my past in 20 years. I haven't even thought about it. I haven't really told anybody about my childhood. And so I'll say this and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, so it requires courage on all of our parts. And then how are you really feeling about life, about God, about your relationships, about your work? How are you really feeling? Now, how are you, how are you first three words. You can say that as you're passing each other in the hallway. How are you really feeling? You need to be sitting down. You need to be in a relationship. You need to be eating, having a drink together, out for a walk, doing something. You need time for this. And so you can't do this with everyone, but maybe there's someone in your life who said, you know what? Like maybe someone in your home group said, I've kind of felt at odds with that person, or just distant from them. I don't think we've been in a home group. I don't think I know them. I want to. And just break the ice and say, call them up. Hey, I don't think we know each other enough. Can we go out? I want to ask you some of these questions. Maybe it's somebody that you've been in a relationship for a while and you think, I don't think, we haven't sort of, we have have fun together, we chat, we laugh, we small talk. We've never gone to the next level in that friendship. I'm going to go there now. And I can tell you, it just takes one of you to have the courage to say, we're just going to do this. I've given you three questions to do that. We want to end today at the table of the Lord the table that is full of the embarrassing riches of grace that has been poured into you and I. And so as, as Tony and the elders are gonna serve us, come on, let's come running today to this table to say amazing grace I have freely received. That this is for all of us sinners to receive the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. And so the worship team's gonna lead us as we respond today.